Thank you for listening to this message from Tree of Life Church. Our prayer is that it will be a blessing to you and that you will find it helpful for life. So open up your heart to receive God's word for you. I'm going to read something to you really quick. We're going to dive right in, make it really quick. Exodus 3, 1 through 8. I'll give you a second to get to this place. I've been reading Exodus lately. I think I've been reading it too much because I'm starting to look like Moses. And I uh, was reading at Starbucks the other day and something jumped out at me. And, uh, and so we're going to talk about that tonight. Exodus 3, 1 through 8. Hope everybody's awake and doing well. How many people, your kids are on spring break? <clears throat> For parents, I'm not sure if that's tiring or restful. I don't know what that looks like at your house. But uh, one day, here we go. One day, Moses was tending the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. I have a hard time taking Jethro's name seriously because it was ruined forever by the Beverly Hillbillies. He led the flock far into the wilderness, and he came to Sinai, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the middle of a bush. Moses stared in amazement. Kind of the open mouth thing, you know. It was before they had cell phones, so otherwise he'd have recorded it. Though the bush was engulfed in flames, it didn't burn up. This is amazing, Moses said to himself. Why isn't that bush burning up? I must go see it. I love how obvious the Bible is sometimes, you know. Like, yeah, that's probably what he was thinking, but I love the detail that they record. When the Lord saw Moses coming to take a closer look, God called to him from the middle of the bush, Moses, Moses, here I am, Moses replied. Don't come any closer, the Lord warned. Take off your sandals for you're standing on holy ground. I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And when Moses heard this, he covered his face because he was afraid to look at God. The title of tonight's message is Appearances. We're going to go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for this day. Jesus, we are so infinitely grateful for you. We pray that we never stop growing in gratitude for you and what you did for us. Father, that we would just remember for a second the sacrifice that you made when you sent your only son to die for us. Father, that every time we think about it, it, it would hit us like a ton of bricks, God, that you gave up so much to bring us home to you. And so, Jesus, we love you with all of our hearts. And we're here on a Wednesday night. We're the, the weird crowd, and we're here because we want to learn more about what it means to passionately pursue you, to follow you, and to be fully devoted followers of you. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. So I notice a few things in this passage. I noticed six things in this little segment, and this is not the main points. You don't have to write them down. I'm going to move really quickly through these, but six things I see right here, and then we'll get to some other stuff. But number one, God appears to Moses at Mount Sinai, which was called the mountain of God at other times. Number two, Moses, I love this. Moses is minding his own business. He's working at his proverbial nine to five when God makes his appearance. Moses redirects his attention towards God. He is caught up in amazement and wonder, or I would say maybe in honor as well. We might say worship like we just did. God tells him not to come any closer because he's standing on holy ground. God shows Moses that he's with him. He graces and empowers Moses for a specific task and he promises his presence that's a little bit later on. And then God instructs him to come back and to worship at Mount Sinai once the Israelites are free. Now, let me read that for you. 
A little bit later on as Moses is talking to God, in verse 12, God says, I will be with you. I love that. And this is your sign that I'm the one who sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God at this very mountain. How many, how many people in here love Christmas? Anybody love Christmas? Okay, here's what I want to do. How many people in here are extroverts? Wow. How many people in here are introverts? Ha, ah, there's a lot more. How many extroverts love Christmas? I like the excited hand. That's what tells me that you're an extrovert. They're like, yeah, you know, it's like karate hands. Um, how many introverts love Christmas? Okay, wow, that's impressive. So Christmas means a lot of different things to people, but what Christmas kind of comes down to is a lot of sweets, right? A lot of songs that you're going to hear now, I think, from about September all the way through January is probably what Christmas songs are. But some of the great old jazz classics, which I love hearing. And then it comes down to a whole lot of what? Christmas parties. You know what I'm talking about? There's so many. It seems like there's one every single week. And so we get caught up in it. And what I love about Christmas parties, this is going to sound really bad. It's not really what I love. But I love people's excuses for why they can't go. (laughs) And if you notice, an introvert and an extrovert have, they have different excuses for why not to go to a party. An extrovert's excuse might sound something like, I have another engagement that day. I already made plans. I'm sorry, right? And an introvert's excuse might sound something like, maybe like, it's gonna, they're gonna say it like this. I don't have an ugly sweater to wear or I didn't buy a gift for the party. But in it translated into an introvert's mind, what that really means is, I'm gonna go home and I'm gonna read a book or I'm going to go home and I'm going to watch Netflix, something to that effect. But something that happens, if you notice, if you're a parent, you've been to way too many birthday parties or way too many Christmas parties, there's some phrase that we say sometimes when we feel like we should go, but we really don't want to. And we use this golden little phrase, and it is, I'm not going to stay the whole time, but I'm going to make an appearance. Anybody ever said that before? I got to thinking about that today and the, the statement, I'm going to make an appearance. I think when we say I'm going to make an appearance, it makes us feel slightly important when we say that. Because if you stop and think about it, there's only a few types of people who really have the right to just make an appearance. That would be maybe the president and a couple other people. Because when somebody makes an appearance, it means that they're literally that busy, right? That they can only stop by for a second. But when somebody makes an appearance... A true appearance, like the president showed up to your job one day, you remember that experience for the rest of your life. You may not have been truly deeply touched by it, but you remember like, I shook his hand and I said, and you'll tell somebody what you said and it was so basic, it was, hello, Mr. President, or something lame like that, but you are so proud that you said it. You know what I'm talking about? Because you had an encounter, because they stopped in, they made an appearance, And I got to thinking about who can make an appearance. You know, it's presidents, it's famous people and all this stuff. But if anybody can make an appearance, it's God. And the cool thing about when God makes an appearance is he doesn't leave you with a memory. It leaves you marked and it leaves you changed. And so when God made an appearance to Moses, it left Moses marked and it left him changed. He was doing his average job. He was working his nine to five. He was on the backside of the desert in the middle of the mountain range and God just shows up out of nowhere and leaves him forever changed. I love that concept that God would just pop out of nowhere and talk to us. So an appearance from God leaves you changed for life. You can never go back. 
You're faced with an ultimate choice to act on what you've experienced or to actively choose not to remember it. You don't just forget an encounter with God. You push it away on purpose. Generally speaking, that's how it works. And so there's a catch to all this though because I don't think that it's enough for us to just go from our nine to five jobs every day and then take kids to soccer practice and do all this stuff and just hope that God's going to catch us with a burning bush somewhere or with a burning minivan or something on the way to soccer practice or whatever that is. That may have been how we got saved, but sometimes I think that there's a catch to all this that we're looking for this burning bush moment again and again and again And we're looking for God to make this appearance out of nowhere again. And there's definitely times in our lives where God does that. But I want us to think about Pentecost really quick. If you know the story of Pentecost, it was a a traditional Jewish festival. And Jesus had died and was risen again at Passover. And he went back to heaven and he told the disciples to stay in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit came. And so at Pentecost, uh, at that festival, they're praying. And let me, let me show you where it, what happens in Acts 2, 1 through 4. It says, On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. Suddenly there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. And everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit, and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. Pretty cool story. There's all these people in the upper room praying. I heard a guy say one time, fantastic quote. He said, you can't plan an event like Pentecost, but if you lock yourself in a room for 10 days and pray, it's bound to happen. Something's gonna happen. There's three words in this passage that stick out to me. It's the word meeting, it's the word suddenly, and it's the word present. It says, all the believers were meeting together in one place. And then suddenly there was a sound from heaven. Now we don't know how long they had been meeting before this sound, this suddenly thing happened. We don't know exactly how long they had been in this room. Like we don't know if they had just come back from a lunch break. Hey guys, we're done praying for right now. Whatever that may be. We don't know the time frame exactly on that, let's say on that day. It was early in the morning. We do know that. But what if they had been praying all night? We're not really sure. But then when you go on, it says everyone present, everybody say present, was filled with the Holy Spirit. These believers were meeting. All of a sudden, God makes an appearance. And if you notice, it says everybody present was filled with the Holy Spirit. Here's the thing. If you wanted to be one of the first people in the early church ever to receive the Holy Spirit, you had to, at least if you wanted to be included in this story, you had to be in that room that day. I'm not saying that God couldn't have filled you with the Holy Spirit if you were somewhere else. I don't know how all that played out. But I'm just thinking if you wanted to be recorded in the Bible as a person who was in the upper room, then you had to have made the effort to be in the upper room. And you may not have known exactly when it was going to happen. You just know the Holy Spirit's coming. And so you made the effort to get up that day and to go pray in the upper room. And look what happened. And so these are believers. I I just was kind of thinking about this just now. These are believers, a lot of them, like, let's say the disciples. The disciples had a burning bush experience of sorts with Jesus. You think about Matthew living in sin. He was, in fact, ripping people off probably at the very moment that Jesus walked up and said, why don't you come follow me? 
That's a burning bush experience where God makes an appearance on the scene and it changes something in Matthew's life. These believers had gone through a burning bush experience. But you know what? At the end of it all, we find them in Acts and they have made an effort to be in a room to pray together. And as they've made this effort, and we don't know exactly for how long, we don't know how hungry or how tired or how thirsty they were. All we hear is suddenly there's a sound and the Holy Spirit comes. Suddenly there's an encounter. Turn with me really quick to Exodus 19, 1 through 10. Is it okay to read a lot of the Bible in church? I just wanted to make sure. Exactly two months after the Israelites left Egypt, they arrived in the wilderness of Sinai. After breaking camp at Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and set up camp there at the base of Mount Sinai. So they've been trekking around for a couple months. You got to figure this. People estimate this to be like maybe even a million people or more walking around in the desert. I mean, it's just crazy. Then Moses climbed the mountain to appear before God. The Lord called to him from the mountain and said, give these instructions to the family of Jacob. Announce it to the descendants of Israel. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and you know how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. By the way, the the thought of eagle's wings would suggest that there's not a lot of effort. All they had to do was just trust God and walk out of there. God did all the plague and all, all the plagues and all the work for them. But I, I, I carried you on eagle's wings and I brought you to myself. Now, if you will obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure from among all the peoples on earth. For all the earth belongs to me. And you'll be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. This is the message you must give to the people of Israel. So Moses returned from the mountain and he called together the elders of the people and told them everything the Lord had commanded him. And all the people responded together, we will do everything the Lord has commanded. That's a big old promise right there. So Moses brought the people's answer back to the Lord. And they're probably thinking as he walks back up the hill, oh wait, we didn't mean everything. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will come to you in a thick cloud, Moses, so the people themselves can hear me when I speak with you. Then they will always trust you. Moses told the Lord what the people had said. Then the Lord told Moses, go down and prepare the people for my arrival. I love a couple things in this scripture. On a side note, I love that when God would um, set up a leader, what he would do is he would have him have it publicly known that he was speaking to them. And that's what gave them credibility. Aren't you grateful for leaders and people in our lives, and especially at this church who listen to Jesus? And we don't always get everything right, but we do our very best. And so... These scriptures take place after Moses has led the people of Israel out of Egypt and they're on their way to the promised land. And it makes me remember Exodus 3, verse 12, which we read. Let me remind you of it again. God tells Moses, I'll be with you. And you notice he says it all over again right there later on. He says, the people will always trust you if they know that my presence is with you. He says, I will be with you. And this is your sign that I'm the one who has sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God at this very mountain. Now, I want to notice a couple of things. God told Moses 16 chapters ago in this book of Exodus that when you are out of captivity and you've led the Egyptians out of that place, you'll know that I'm with you when you come and you worship me again at this mountain. So this is literally a fulfillment of a prophecy from God. But something else that I notice is that in chapter 18, 
I'm pretty sure that it's not in there anywhere that the Lord has commanded and reminded Moses to go up that mountain. Moses remembered what God told him way back at the burning bush experience, and he made the choice to climb a mountain. And here's kind of what I think about that. In Exodus 3, God appears to Moses, and we can look at the terminology in the scriptures and see it. In Exodus 3, it says, there the angel of the Lord appeared to him, Moses, in a blazing fire from the middle of the bush at Mount Sinai. And then we see in Exodus 19, it says, Moses climbed the mountain to appear before God. Notice the word appear is strategically used two times in Exodus 3 and Exodus 19. And in one instance, we see that God spontaneously appears to Moses. And in, in another instance, we see that Moses makes a choice to climb a mountain and appear before God. This hasn't been prompted recently. This may have been prompted like at least way more than two months ago when God met him on the backside of the desert. He told him that. And later on, Moses makes a choice to climb a mountain and appear before God. If you could, I want you to write this down today. When you appear before God, he will always reveal himself to you. When you appear before God, he will always reveal himself to you. There's a thought process that we sometimes encounter in our lives and we sometimes adhere to and stick to and that thought process is, God, where are you? God, why haven't you appeared to me? God, why haven't you revealed yourself to me lately? God, why haven't you shown yourself to me lately? And sometimes that's a very valid question. It's, a very, it's something that we can really ask, but I wonder if we're asking the right questions. I wonder if we should be asking the question, God, Am I appearing before you enough? See, Moses didn't have to wait for God to light up another bush for him to understand that he could connect with the presence of God. Moses made a very distinct decision without being prompted, at least recently, to climb an entire mountain and appear before God. There's no guarantee that God's just gonna be there when he gets on top of the mountain. There's no guarantee um, that it's going to be a thick cloud of smoke and all this kind of stuff. But Moses makes a decision and a choice to climb up the mountain. It makes kind of sense to me that when we see in Hebrews 4.16, it says, so let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we'll find grace to help us when we need it most. So as I'm sitting in Starbucks the other day, um, I'm just thinking, and I was waiting on somebody to get there, actually, and I began just journaling for myself and thinking about myself and how this scripture is challenging me because I noticed that thought about Moses appears before God, and the Lord began challenging me, and all these things just flooded my head, and I began thinking about Mount Sinai. What he climbed was a physical mountain that he had to scale that he had to work very hard. I mean, he's about 80 years old at this point. He had to work very hard to get up that mountain. Working incredibly, extremely hard. Actually, he was around 40. I got that wrong. That was really bad. So he was around 40 years old at that time. But even if you are 40, you know, you probably don't want to go climb an entire mountain solo right now. You know what I'm saying? I don't want to do that. So he's climbing this mountain and we're seeing all this stuff. He was 80. It just clicked in my head. Awesome. I'm having problems today. That's okay. So He's about 80 years old. Now we've established that through wrapping it around a few times. He's 80 years old. He climbs this mountain. And 
I just think about the physical mountain that he goes up. And what I began thinking, I'm sitting in Starbucks at this high top chair. I know exactly where I was at in the, in the, in the place. I'm thinking about this mountain. And I began to think, what is this mountain in my life that I have to climb to make myself appear before God? Because for so many of us, we're never going to have to climb a physical mountain. And in fact, Jesus made it really easy for us to get into the presence of God. But what it tends to happen in our lives is we have different kinds of mountains. And so today we're going to talk about four mountains that we must climb to appear before God. And we're going to go through these pretty quickly. But there's four mountains that we have to climb to be able to appear before God. And we're going to dive in straight away. Number one is the mountain of time. Everybody say time. Jesus himself had to intentionally make time to be in God's presence. We can see in Mark 1.35, it says, before daybreak the next morning, Jesus got up and went out to an isolated place to pray. There were no alarm clocks back then. Jesus intentionally got up and went out to an isolated place to pray. I've heard it said, I don't know if this is a legitimate quote or not, but I think it was Billy Graham's wife. Somebody said one time that she was obviously very busy. He was gone a lot. She's taking care of the kids. And she said, my best time to pray is when I'm ironing everybody's clothes before the day begins. Intentional time. So many times we live in a culture where we think that being busier equals being better. Sometimes we think that being busier equals being more holy or better stewards of our time when we're yanking everything we can out of a minute. But God would say, hey, it took Moses forever to climb that stinking mountain. And there were tons of people at the bottom that needed something from him, but he needed to go get something from God. There were tons of people pulling at Jesus all the time, but he needed to isolate himself and take time to go before the Lord. Jesus could never have said, I only do what I see the Father doing and I only say what I hear the Father saying if he didn't actually spend enough time with God to know what he was doing and hear what he was saying. And so we're stuck in this rut so many times of, well, I just don't have time. But God's saying, listen, if you'd make time, then I would show you how to use all the other time. If you'd make time, I'd redeem all the other time, just like a tithe with money. We give a tithe and God redeems the rest of the 90% of our income. God's saying, if you would make time, I'd redeem all that. You wouldn't be so stressed out, so fearful, so anxious. Maybe if we made time to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit, he'd tell us the little things like, hey, put your clothes in the dryer because you're gonna need them in a couple hours. Or he'd tell us the, the bigger things like you forgot your kid at school. We'd hear him a little better, you know? So I wonder if we would give God a little bit more of our time. If we'd climb the mountain of time, what would happen? You got to make the time to appear before God. You got to seize the opportunity when you can. It took a long time to climb that mountain. It took a lot of work. Number two is the mountain of distraction. Distraction. Notice that Mark 135 says, Jesus went out to an isolated place to pray. If you read a little bit later, it says, then his disciples came out to find him. It was like moms, you know, moms all know the old thing when you're in the bathroom and a hand comes under the door, you know what I'm talking about? Mom, he's hitting me, whatever that is. And you can't get a secret moment in your life whatsoever. Jesus kind of lived with that where he understood that there were people pressing at him all the time and there was people doing this, but I've got to get away from the distractions to be able to hear from God's voice. For me, I've got to get away from this. I've got to put it down, put it out of my sight, and get away from it. But for some of us, that's a lot of different things. Maybe it's even a, 
good things that are distracting us from God. I love in uh, Luke chapter 10, we see the story of Mary and Martha. And Martha is preparing a big dinner because Jesus, God in the flesh, has made an appearance where she lives. He has shown up to her house. And so she begins preparing and doing all this crazy stuff and making a dinner where if you look, Moses in the Old Testament, he just said, I'm gonna look and see what is happening. I'm gonna pay attention and focus. Martha says, I'm gonna do something about it. I'm gonna serve. I'm gonna try to make something out of it. So Jesus makes an appearance in Martha and Mary's house and Martha begins to work and work and work and Mary decides to appear before Jesus and sit at his feet and learn from what he's teaching. And Jesus says, Mary chose the better thing. He didn't say it was bad for Martha to work, but he said Mary chose something better. She was distracted by trying to impress Jesus instead of just appearing before him. Number three is the mountain of complacency. Mark Batterson sums up the difference between Peter and the other 11 disciples with this quote. Sinking is better than sitting. Sinking is better than sitting. We talk about this, a lot of people have been talking about this a lot, how Peter got such a bad rap for sinking, but everybody else was sitting in the boat. Everybody else was scared and he was walking on water. I'd rather walk and sink than be complacent and sit there. There's two types of regrets in life. There's regrets of commission and regrets of omission. Things you wish you didn't do and things you wish you would have done. They say statistically that so many more people regret the things they didn't do at the end of their lives. We see it all over the scripture, especially if you want to look in Revelation, complacency among the churches that Jesus addresses. But I have something that, that I think I have for the guys on the screen. It says, complacency is rooted in fear and apathy. At its core, it is a lack of faith that what God is calling us to do is possible or even worth doing. Complacency says, God, I don't think that's possible, so I'm not even going to try. I don't want to sink, so I'm just going to sit here. Or at its very worst, complacency says, God, I don't think that's worth it, so I'm not going to try. I'm giving up right here, right now, because I can't go any further. I'm done. Complacency is a mountain that we have to climb. Is it worth it to be in God's presence for us? Number four is the mountain of pride. Pride is sneaky. Pride isn't just obvious arrogance. It's actually the assumption that we know best. That's how I would personally define pride, and you can write it down. Pride is the belief that we know more than God. Pride is what got us kicked out of the garden. Did God really say that? He just doesn't want you to know what he knows. You may think that it's obvious arrogance, that's what pride is, but what about when the Lord tells you it's time to take a day to rest, a Sabbath, time to rest, and you tell him you've got too much to do? Wouldn't that be considered pride? Because God's telling you, take a deep breath, relax for a minute, and I'll take care of all the rest of it. What about 1 Peter? Cast your cares on him for he cares for you. But we say, God, no, 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 I know how to handle this, I know best. I always think about the animals, you know, like wild animals when they're hurt, and you try to help them and they try to bite you because they just don't get that you're the only one that actually knows how to help them. Pride often sneaks up on us in that way. It's also pride when we believe that we don't have time to spend being rejuvenated and refreshed with God because we're helping so many other people. That's called a God complex. And we're not God. And we can't do that. 
Isn't it probably when we get so busy trying to manage our lives that we forget to ask God for his help? James 4, 6 says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Note that the goal of entering God's presence in Hebrews 4, 6, and we'll get there again, is to receive grace to help us. Somebody very wise once told me that only a two-year-old says I can do it by myself. That's a great thought, and it humbles you a lot. And that leads us to our last mountain, and the last mountain is number five, the mountain of shame. So many of us have felt that we're unworthy of entering God's presence because of what we've done, what we've done. And we forget that Hebrews is telling us that we run into our Father's presence for mercy. Can we put up that Hebrew scripture again, guys? Hebrews 4, verse 16. I'll find it. It says, so let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. You see, the point of running into God's presence, the point of climbing these mountains is to receive two things, mercy and grace. Mercy being forgiveness of sins, grace being an empowerment to live life differently. And when we forget to run to the presence of God, when we let shame keep us from going into the presence of God, what we're saying is, It's just so illogical when you begin to process it because you're saying, I did something wrong so I can't go to God's presence where I'll receive mercy for the wrong thing that I did. It makes absolutely no sense. Mercy implies that we need forgiveness and it implies that we've made a mistake or we've willfully sinned. Also that guy, Mark Batterson, he says that worship is forgetting what's wrong with you and remembering what's right with God. I love that. I never sang in that song, I believe in me. I believe I'll never sin again. I said, I believe in you. I believe you rose again. Because I'm focusing on what's right with God and not what's wrong with me. You know, if you read further in Exodus, God's so perfect that he told the people, if you touch this mountain while my presence is on it, you're gonna die. Because I'm perfect. And when you get like a perfect thing and an imperfect thing together, something's gotta give and imperfection is gonna give. And what I love about God is because all that happened, but now because of Jesus, we've been made right with him. And when Jesus died, we gained unprecedented access into the presence of God. We say that all the time in our worship team, unprecedented access into the presence of God. When it tells you to come boldly before God's throne, that wasn't allowed in Moses' day. That didn't exist. Moses was pretty bold for climbing that mountain. When it tells us to do that, it's something that we've never seen before. We no longer come timidly hoping to be accepted. We come boldly seeking God's mercy and grace because we need it, not because we deserve it, but because he gives it freely. In the Old Testament, Moses climbed a mountain. I was thinking of this. In the Old Testament, Moses climbs a mountain and he meets with a holy God. And he's barely allowed to meet with a holy God. And if anybody touches that mountain, we know they'll pass away because God is so perfect that something has to give. But in the New Testament, we see Jesus carry a cross up a mountain called Calvary and he becomes the sacrifice and he opens the way so that now our mountains that we have to climb, really what we have to do, if you think about it, it doesn't say we have to come boldly up a mountain. It says we have to step into the presence of God. Because what was a mountain to climb for Moses, for us now, only it's mental mountains like this. But honestly, for us, it's really just a matter of stepping over the threshold of a door 
and into God's presence. And everything that you're going to face to walk through that door is all right here in your mind. And so it's our goal and it's our choice to allow God to remind us that we don't have to be moved by the mountain of time, that we don't have to be swayed by the mountain of of distraction or the mountain of complacency or pride or shame, but that we can come boldly before God's throne to receive his grace today. So I'm gonna ask you this, what's stopping you this week from entering into God's presence in a deeper way? What's stopping you from connecting with a savior who paid the price for you to be able to walk freely in and just ask for forgiveness? You walk freely in and you say, God, I need mercy, I need forgiveness. You walk freely in and you say, God, I need your grace, I need you to empower me to be able to change. All shame does is it tells you you can't change. All grace does when you walk into the presence of God is it tells you, I'm giving you the power to change right now. Let's pray together. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you for who you are. We worship you and we ask in the name of Jesus that you'd help us. God, we don't want to succumb to these mountains. God, we don't want to, want to see time as an obstacle to getting to know you. We just want to overcome it in Jesus' name. We don't want to be distracted by the cares of this life. Jesus said, if you'd seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all these things would be added to you. God, we don't want to be complacent. We don't want to fear that it's not possible with you, that you're really not big enough. We don't want to think that it's not worth it to follow you because God, I've tried and it was so hard. But you know what? The Bible says my presence will go before you, in front of you, and I will give you rest. You told Israel that you had carried them on eagles' wings. It wasn't their work. You were the one doing the flapping. You were the one doing the flying. It was you. Father, we don't want to succumb to the mountain of pride where we think, God, I got this. I can do it on my own. We don't want to have the two-year-old mentality of I don't need your help. Father, we don't want to have the mentality of shame. We say, God, I'm not worthy to enter your presence. And Jesus said, no, I was forsaken by God. I was turned away by God so that you could become worthy to enter the presence of God. It's not about what you do. It's about what I did for you 2,000 years ago on a cross. Don't feel ashamed. Feel like you've been made right with God and restored by God. And now you're able to enter boldly and say, hey, daddy, I need some grace. I'm sorry for what I did. I made a mistake, but can you help me fix it? God, let us overcome the mountains that would tell us that we're not good enough. We're not worthy. At the baseline of all this is a belief that you're not good enough and we're not good enough. So we just don't want to come to you. Help us not to be that kind of people. We hope that you enjoyed this message. You can find more messages and information about Tree of Life Church at treeoflifechurch.org. We'd like to invite you to come visit us at 5513 IH35 South in New Braunfels, Texas, or you can watch us on live stream. Thank you again for listening.